Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26, where our lesson will be from this morning. Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> before we begin, let's bow before our Lord in prayer. <clears throat> our Father, which art in heaven, holy and reverend, is your matchless name. And Lord, we very carefully, reverently come into your presence this morning only in our Lord Jesus Christ, pleading only his obedience is our righteousness, pleading only his precious blood that cleanses us from all sin, his precious person which makes us accepted in thy sight, accepted in the beloved. Father, we're so thankful. And Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship your matchless name. We've gathered here to, to hear more of our Savior, to, to worship him, exalt and lift up his name. Father, I pray you'd bless us as we look into your word, that you'd mix everything that we see and hear with eyes of faith, ears of faith, that we might open your word and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust and, and rest in him. Father, I pray you bless your word here and in other places where your word is being preached this morning. Father, bless in a mighty and special way. We pray you bless our brother Eric as he's preaching in Danville. Father, give them a, a special time of worship and bring him and Abby back home safe to us. Father, we pray for our children's classes. How we thank you for all these young ones that you've given to us. And Father, I pray you bless their teachers you'd enable them to rightly divide the word of truth and bless our children with a hearing ear, a receptive and believing heart. Use this time, if it could be thy will, to plant the seeds of faith in their heart. Father, we dare not forget to pray for those who are sick and in many various different troubles and trials. Father, we pray that you'd be with your people, that you'd deliver, that you'd comfort, that you'd give a special portion of your presence to them. All these things we ask in that name which is above every name, the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All right, I titled our lesson this morning, My Time. I took the title from verse 18, where the Savior said, Go into the city to such a man and saying to him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. Now this time, the Savior's talking about this hour, is the hour of hours. He calls it my time here. Many other places he calls it my hour. This hour is the hour of the sacrifice of sin for God's elect. All of the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to this hour. In type and picture they told of this hour. All of the gospels pointed to this hour from our Lord's birth as he marched his way, set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, to Calvary. All the gospels tell how he was pointed to this hour. All the epistles wrote of this hour, told us what the Savior accomplished in this hour. All of eternity will look back upon this hour. All of eternity will hinge upon this hour. Where you and I spend eternity hinges upon this hour. This is the hour the Savior spoke of often. You remember while the Lord was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples fell asleep. He came back to them and he told them, sleep on. Take your rest. The hour has come. The hour. 
Several times after the Lord preached, he, he made the people so mad that they sought to take him and kill him, but no man could lay hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Now this is the hour. Now the Savior says it's come. The hour of his sacrifice for sin. And this hour is the whole reason he came incarnate. The Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He was born in the flesh for this purpose. So he could die for the sins of his people at the appointed hour. He says, now it's come. In John 12, verse 27, he said, now is my soul troubled. He's troubled thinking about this hour, thinking about what he would suffer in this hour. But he said, what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. This is the whole reason I came to earth for this hour. And there are four things I want us to see about this time, the Lord's time that has come. And I believe these things will be a blessing to our souls. Number one, this time, the Lord's time, was a sovereignly appointed time. This was no accident. This time, this exact time, was purposed and planned by God from all of eternity. Look at, uh, at verse 21. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Look over at John chapter 6. The Lord knew exactly, he always knew exactly who it was that would betray him. The Lord's betrayal was no accident. Not just that he was betrayed, but who would betray him? The Lord always knew that. He knew that because he's sovereign. John chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my father. Now the Lord knew exactly who it was that, that would betray him. But now, the Lord Jesus was not just merely a, a fortune teller. He was someone that just could predict the future. The Lord knew what was going to happen in the future because he's sovereign over the future. He's the one who sovereignly ordained this thing, this thing of his betrayal, and everything that happens. He sovereignly ordained that to happen from eternity. Do you know Judas betraying the Savior was our God's eternal purpose? As horrible as it was, Judas betraying the Lord, all that was was God's will being carried out. We read that last week in Psalm 41. David wrote of Ahithophel, but he was prophesying of Judas. said, My own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. This was God's eternal purpose, and he made sure we knew it because of this prophecy of Judas. Judas betraying the Lord, the Lord was his will, God's will from all of eternity. Now you think nothing could possibly have been more evil than Judas betraying the Lord. But when Judas betrayed the Lord, just like right at this very second, our God was sovereign. This thing didn't happen against his will. It was God's will being carried out. And our God is sovereign. And since he's sovereign, he can bring good out of evil. And God Almighty brought the best good that could possibly have happened out of Judas' evil, wicked act. Out of Judas' betrayal came the crucifixion of Christ as a sacrifice for his people. God ordained that from all of eternity. 
so that by that sacrifice, the sin of God's people would be put away and would happen as a direct result of this evil betrayal of Judas. Now, the sovereignty of God is good, true, sound doctrine. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching a God who's sovereign. But more than good doctrine, God's sovereignty is the comfort of the hearts of God's people. Knowing that our God is sovereign. He always works his will among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Nothing that ever happens on this earth is an accident. Nothing. God sovereignly is ruling over it and ordained it. And that includes every includes every event that ever happens to you and me. Whether we think it's good or or whether we think it's bad, it's God's will being carried out. God has not changed. He never will change. He never has changed. God's still carrying out the same purpose he carried out when Judas betrayed the Savior. He's still carrying out the eternal redemption of his people. And since our God is sovereign, absolutely nothing in heaven, earth, or hell can stop God from doing his will. And it would comfort our hearts and ease our hearts and enable us to, to, to just settle down and endure these things patiently when things we think are, are bad or things that are painful happen to us. You know, our God's sovereign over this. He's going to bring something good out of it. Now, I may not see it. I may not, re- you know, but he's going to bring something good out of it. God's working this together to accomplish the eternal redemption of his people. All right, number two, this time, our Lord's time, happened at a sovereignly appointed place. Look at verse 17. On the first day of the the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I'll keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now look over to Mark chapter 14. Mark gives us a little more more detail about what happened here. It sounds like the disciples went to this place, went to the city, this place in Jerusalem, where the Lord told them to go, and they met a stranger. Look here at Mark 14, verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, When they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples." And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared, and there make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now the writer said, you know, the, the Lord knew the, the, the person, you know, where he was going to go eat. The disciples knew it was a well-known person. I'm convinced that's not, not true because the Lord didn't tell him go to, if, if, if it was, you know, John's house they'd say go to John's house and you know he didn't say that he he didn't tell them to go to somebody's house that he that they already knew he didn't call anybody by name he said just go into the city you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water wherever he's going you just follow him down the street when he goes into the house 
he's a this is a servant. So the servant goes in the house. You find the the goodman, the, the butler, whoever you know, over the house, and you ask him where's the guest chamber because I'm going to eat the Passover there. That seems pretty bold, doesn't it? To invite yourself somebody's house, <laughs> I just you know where, where's your guest room? I'm going to I'm going to use your guest room tonight. But they did. They went, and the disciples found not only were they welcome at that house. The room was already prepared. This man, the, the, the goodman of the house, had prepared the guest room for somebody to use when he didn't even know anybody was coming. Our God sovereignly arranged that. He sovereignly arranged the, the place where this, this last Passover and the first Lord's table would be observed. And the point I'm trying to make here is this, is every event around our Lord's time, around this hour, was sovereignly appointed the place, the house where they would eat this last Passover was divinely appointed by God. And that's still true about everything. Everything. The Savior died at the appointed time, at the appointed place on Calvary's Hill. In the appointed method. In the appointed method. It's no accident that the Lord died at Calvary. Because that was the mountain. He was to be crucified on that God appointed from all of eternity. And it's no accident that he died there on the cross, that he was crucified there too. You know, I suppose they could have chopped his head off, but they didn't, did they? The Jews' form of capital punishment was stoning. wonder why they didn't stone him. The Romans' form of capital punishment was crucifixion. Well, Pilate didn't want anything to do with this thing, putting Jesus to death, did he? Why didn't he just tell the Jews, you go off and do it, I'm not having anything to do with it. If you want him dead, you stone him. He didn't say that, did he? Why did they ultimately decide on crucifying the Savior? Because that was the purpose of God. God ordained that from all of of eternity. Everything they did in this time, in that hour, everything they did fulfilled the Scriptures. It was just like these men flipped back to the Old Testament Scriptures, just like a uh, play you put on. I remember when I was in high school and we did plays. The first thing you do is you get that script and you start reading through the script, see what you're supposed to do. You know, this script tells you what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to say, when you're supposed to say it. It looks like they, to me, they went back to Old Testament scriptures and just said, well, what's the script? What are we supposed to do next? What are we supposed to say next? Everything they did fulfilled the scriptures, including crucifying the Savior on the cross. In the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, says this, He that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Whoever is hanged on a tree, crucified on a tree, is accursed of God. The Lord Jesus Christ died in the sovereignly appointed way. At the sovereignly appointed place on the cross. This was God's purpose to show us that the Lord Jesus Christ bore the curse of sin for his people. So they'll never bear the effects of that curse. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That wouldn't have happened if he was stoned, but it was if he's crucified. That's why he was crucified. See, all of this is happening because God's sovereign over the time, the place, and the method. And the Lord said, now his time has come. And everything's going to happen exactly the way that it's supposed to happen. So that God's elect are saved from their sin. See, this is not, I mean, again, now this is good doctrine. This is something that's good. We need to be taught this. But this happened the way that it happened. 
understand the truth of it, but take the comfort of it to your heart. All this happened exactly the way it had to happen so that your sin could be put away by the blood of Christ. So that's good doctrine, isn't it? But that comforts your heart. That causes your, your heart to be thrilled at trusting Christ as your Savior, doesn't it? All right, number three. The Savior said, my time has come. This time was the time of God's greatest glory. This is the time of the redemption of, the, of God's elect that's been purposed from all of eternity, and now it's going to happen in time. It's going to be accomplished. Now, the death of Christ as a sacrifice for the sin of his people was the will and purpose of God from all of eternity. This is the way God elected the Savior and he elected a people to be saved by him. But you know, the purpose of God, the will of God, what God wills to happen in the future is just as sure as something that's already happened in the past. It's just as sure. History and future, they're both the same to God. You know, God lives outside of time. The, the, something that's already taken place and something that's yet to take place in the future are the same to God because God's will is going to happen. It, God's will and purpose being carried out is just as sure as something that's already taken place. That's how sovereign our God is. This is why scripture says Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The father has always seen his people in Christ. He's never seen them outside of Christ. Always seen them in Christ. He's always seen them washed in the blood of Christ. He's always seen their sin paid for by the blood of Christ. He's always seen that and purposed that. That's God's purpose. But that transaction does have to take place in time. And now the Savior says the time has come for that transaction to take place. And the fact that this transaction is going to take place is very, very important to you and me. Isn't it? I mean, we can't be redeemed without it. But there's something more important going on here than you and me. That's probably something we need to get through our head. This is always true. There's something more important going on here than me. And certainly at Calvary's cross, there's something more important going on here than you and me. The Lord Jesus Christ is doing something greater than taking care of my need. Now, he is taking care of my need. He is taking care of the need of his people. But he's doing something more important than you and me. He's taking care of his father's need. He's satisfying the character and the nature of his father. He's satisfying the justice of his father. He's enabling his father to be just and justifier. He's enabling his father to remain just, to remain holy, to remain God, and still justify the ungodly like you and me. At Calvary, God's greatest glory was put on display for all of creation to see. Look over at John chapter 17. I don't know what they're calling this, uh, this latest uh, satellite and telescope that they've launched out into space. Bob and I texted about this last week. The pictures that thing is sending back are absolutely stunning, aren't they? You just, man's never seen this before. It's just stunning what our God has created. I, mean, I just look at those pictures in amazement. That, I can't even say pales in comparison. It's just, there's no comparison to that. 
to the glory of God he put on display at Calvary. His greatest glory. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. This is the reason Christ was going to cross to glorify his father. He says in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The Father's greatest glory is his sovereign mercy to sinners. And the only way the Father can remain holy and still show mercy to sinners like you and me is by putting his Son to death. The Son must be crucified. Before the Father can do something for the likes of you and me, Christ first must do something for the Father. He has to satisfy his Father's holiness. He has to satisfy his Father's righteousness and justice. And that's what the death of Christ accomplished. The death of Christ accomplished putting, satisfying God's justice. God's justice is satisfied by the death of the substitute. God's justice is satisfied because the sin of God's elect was literally and actually made Christ's. He made him sin for his people. Justice is satisfied because a guilty man died. A guilty man died. The just, God's justice is satisfied. God's righteousness and holiness is satisfied. Sin has been punished. Sin has been put away under the blood. That enables God to rightly and justly Show mercy to the likes of us. See, that Christ first had to do something for the Father. That enabled the Father to do everything for his people, to redeem them from their sins. I don't even know if throughout eternity we'll ever fully comprehend everything that the, the Savior accomplished in this time, in this hour. He glorified every attribute of the Father, every attribute of God that we will Rejoice in and sing about for all of eternity. All right, here's the fourth thing. This time was a personal time. Christ's sacrifice at Calvary was much, much more than a legal transaction. Now, it was a legal transaction. A legal transaction had to take place here. There's a debt that had to be paid. Had to be. The blood had to be put on the altar before the Lord. It had to be. Sin had to be imputed to Christ the Lamb, and the Lamb had to die for that sin. Had to be. God's justice can only be satisfied by the suffering and death of Christ the substitute. That transaction absolutely had to take place. Had to. You and I could never have any confidence of sin or any confidence of salvation without that transaction taking place. Our sin had to be taken from us and given to the Savior. He had to suffer and die for our sin. There's no confidence of salvation without it. There's no hope of eternal life without it. That took place. A legal transaction took place. When God turned the, the, the sun out and darkness covered the earth, oh, that transaction that was taking place between the Father and the Son I'm telling you, it's a whole lot more than a legal transaction. This was a sacrifice made for sin in great love for a particular people. 
Here Matthew, the Savior, has gathered together the twelve. There's no, no more great multitude. It's not the seventy that, you know, they sent out preaching and doing miracles and things. He gathered the twelve. Those that he called by name together to eat this Passover together with him. And I'm telling you, he'd been looking forward to this hour. He'd been looking forward to it. He'd been, he'd been looking forward to the hour that he would suffer and die for his people. He talked about it so often. He'd been looking forward to it because he loved his people. He wanted to see his people redeemed. He looked forward to the suffering. He, it, it troubled his soul, didn't it? But yet the book of Hebrews tells us he looked forward to a joy, for the joy that was set before him. Look at John chapter 13. He looked forward to that hour, but you know, he also, he looked forward to this hour, this eating this last Passover, observing the first Lord's table. Our Savior looked forward to doing that with these 12, these 12 men. And he did it because he loved them. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He called these men together because he loved them. Oh, how he loves his people. The Lord's gathered this people together today to hear, to hear the gospel, to hear Christ preached, to worship him. He's gathered his people together because he loves them. You think of that. You think of that because he loves them. Look back at Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 15. And he said unto them with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have desire to eat this Passover with you. With you. See, this was personal to the Lord, wasn't it? And this shows us so clearly the Savior died for a specific he died for the people that the Father gave him to save. And he loves those people. This is not just, well, the Father's given me this people to save and I'm going to pay for their sin because that's what my Father wants me to do. Certainly that's part of it. He came to glorify his Father, didn't he? But also because he loves he, he loved them to the end. That's why he went to the Calvary and, and was made sin for them. He died for the people that he loves. Now our minds, our human minds, can't fully comprehend this. The length and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ for his people. You think of the love that caused him to willingly suffer everything he suffered. They didn't take him against his will. He went willingly. They didn't, they didn't beat his face against his will. He gave his face to the smiter. He gave his face to those that would pluck his beard out. I can't even imagine how much that would hurt. I mean, he gave his face to that. He didn't turn away. He gave his back to those that would, that would rake that cat of nine tails across his back. He laid down willingly on that hunk of wood and spread his arms out, whether it was, in a, whether it was a pole or a, a T or an X, we don't know. But he willingly, I bet those Roman soldiers never had an easier time 
nailing somebody to a tree than they did the Lord Jesus. He laid his hands right where they were supposed to go. He put his feet and he didn't try to get away. He gave himself because he loves his people. Not a nameless mass of people by name. On purpose, he died for those people. He gave his back to suffer though. He gave his face. He, oh, because he loves his people. He loves his people. He could have ended it at any given moment, couldn't he? He could have called those 12 legions of angels, put a stop to this pain, this suffering, this humiliation at any moment, but he didn't do it because he loves his people. And his sacrifice is the only way they can be redeemed. So he gave himself to be sacrificed. See, this was personal. He suffered for his people by name. Just like the Lord knew who would would believe on him and who would betray him, the Lord knew who he was suffering and dying for. And he did it for them by name. I mean, I just, this is is beyond comprehension. And I'm telling you, the suffering of Christ is personal to his people too. You know, I don't like the term, my personal savior. And I, I don't use the term, I don't say my personal wife, my personal daughters, you know, my personal children. If Christ is my Savior, there's nothing more personal than that. Of course, he's nothing more personal than being the Savior of your people. This is personal now to me. Christ died for my sin. I know he died for the sin of the elect. Many of you, I know he died for your sin. But I, when I take the Lord's table, when I think about the Savior, he died for my, he did this for me on purpose. If the Lord was only coming to save me, he had to suffer everything he suffered. It couldn't have been any less. Everything he suffered, he had, would have had to have suffered if he was re- redeeming only me. Now, this is personal to me. I sure do love him for it. <laughs> Don't you? If he died for you, you love him for it. You know, I would... Uh, I guess it's just my nature. I don't know if I should, should exactly do this, but I would defend the doctrines that we preach. I would, I would, I could would very easily be drawn into an argument about these doctrines and the truth of these doctrines and things. But you know, I don't love these doctrines that makes us different from from false religion, different from people out there just to be different. I love Him. I love Christ, who these doctrines teach, and more than anything, I want to know Him. I want to trust. Him. Him. I want to love Him. I want to be found in Him. And I want the same for you. I want you to know Him. I want you to trust Him. I want you to love Him. I want you to be found in Him. And that's why I preach only Christ to you. Because I want you to know Him. And nothing can be better for you and me than knowing Him. And believing Him. And nothing could be worse than dying without knowing Him too. We'll close with these verses. Look back in our text. Matthew Chapter 26, verse 24. Nothing could be worse than dying without knowing Him. The Savior said, The Son of Man goeth as it's written of Him. This is being done to fulfill my will. This is being done to fulfill the the Scriptures. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he'd not been born. (laughs) Nothing could be worse than dying without knowing Christ, could it? But nothing can be better living and dying knowing Him.
knowing him. All right. I hope the Lord bless that to you.